0: Hi friends and welcome to the Equestrian Podcast. I'm your host, Bethany Lee, and this is episode 188. Our guest today has earned more honors than any other U.S. dressage rider, competing in six Olympic Games and four medal wins in 1992, 96, 2000, and 2004, and seven FEI World Equestrian Games. He served as a technical advisor and chef de keep for the U.S. dressage team from 2013 to 2018. Under his leadership, the U.S. dressage team returned to the podium at the 2016 Olympic Games in Rio, where the team won a bronze medal. in 2015, he coached the U.S. dressage team to a gold medal at the Pan American Games and in 2018, a team and individual silver medal at the World Equestrian Games. He recently wrote a book called The Gates to Brilliance with Trafalgar Square Books that is so much more than just about his life as a rider, but really gives you amazing tools to live your life to the fullest and is seriously an inspiration to anyone, equestrian or not. So without further ado, I would love to welcome our guest today. Robert Dover. I would love to kind of hear about what uh, had you kind of start riding or entering the equestrian industry from the very beginning.
1: Oh my goodness. Well, <laughs>
0: take us back.
1: <laughs> I, I actually am one of those stories where I went riding with the girl next door. Yeah. So I was 12 years old and was living in a summer place Outside of Toronto, an area called Lake Simcoe, and the next door neighbors had a daughter around my age, and she loved horses and invited me to go riding with her on a couple of ponies that lived in a little paddock and. I don't even know how she was able to secure the their bridles, but I remember that we went and we had to like trek out into the mud and get them and and uh, that was the beginning. I, I started with her getting these two little ponies and riding and then fell in love with it. And she went on and is a hunter and uh, jumper rider and trainer for many, many years. And uh, I kept riding from that point forward.
0: Wow, yeah, who would have thought? (laughs) So cool. So as you were kind of learning and, and developing your love for horses, at what point were you kind of taking it to the next level? Or at what point were you like, I actually really love this. I could see this being a big part of my life.
1: Yeah, the interesting thing is that I never really had a moment like that. My life was a series of events that brought me into the lives of other people who basically saw that I loved horses, but then navigated my life for me. And so when we moved from Canada, where it just so happens that from riding those ponies, we went to a farm, and that farm was called Tricanen Farm, where a lady named Gerda Friedrichs had been bringing over Tricanen horses from Germany, some of probably the first horses in, the, in North America from Germany, uh, and she had a an older man that was a dressage trainer there they put me on a lunch line and I started there and from there my family moved to the Bahamas and a lady named Myra Wagner had the stables there and she was from the British uh, the British Horse Society and the British Pony Club and She took me under her wing, along with so many other kids there, and fostered my riding from that point for another couple of years. And then we moved to Florida, and I was fortunate enough to ride in the South Florida Pony Club with another person who loved dressage. Her name was then Margot Pettis, now Margot Kern, and she again took me under her wing with other kids and pony club and she was training uh with from time to time the coach of our olympic team colonel youngquist so i first met him when i was about 15 years old wow and between him and tina conyat's father alex Cunyat, who i would have lessons from as well uh, I was so fortunate just to be in the right place at the right time with the right people and had amazing people in my life who, uh, along with my parents, helped me to keep moving in a direction that allowed me to, to progress.
0: How was that for you, moving to like multiple very unique locations growing up? How did that affect your riding or kind of the equestrian culture from place to place?
1: Well, the the truth with regard to what it affected was a lot less in terms of my riding and more in terms of the fact that I had no real roots. That I look back on and think it's unfortunate when a kid doesn't have a long enough period of time in any school, for instance, to get to know their classmates and to have memories of those times. So we moved so often that honestly, I don't remember very much of anything with regard to other parts of my life in school and with kids and doing other things. I know I liked soccer when I lived in the Bahamas. I know I we moved on from there to Florida, from there to Georgia, where I went to school as well, and then went to University of Georgia. And then from that point forward, I was traveling back and forth to Maryland and Virginia to work with Colonel Youngquist. And I had, fortunately, some wonderful friends the Riley's and they, they were a family that took me in and let me live there from the time I was 16 and could drive until, wow, till around 1980 when uh Colonel Youngquist died. And I sort of moved on with my life from that point forward. I moved, I lived in, Germany for a while and and yeah it's been a lot of moving around through my life for sure with regard to the horses that was the best part because each one of those moves allowed me to keep riding and progressing first as a pony club or up the ranks through the a pony club and and then also as a dressage rider because it just so happened that the people that I would meet would help me would uh, help me in that direction.
0: Yeah, that, I mean, that's a good point and a good perspective because I think there's so many advantages from learning from so many different perspectives and and different people in our industry. So I think that that's really cool that you've been able to view your your upbringing in a way that, you know, as you mentioned there could be some challenges too, but for the horses, yeah, that's definitely a positive.
1: It was a huge plus. And and, and I was a devoted pony clubber through all of my teens and, and into my 20s, uh, I actually ended up becoming a Pony Club judge and national examiner, a, a, a district commissioner of Arlington Fairfax Pony Club, and did a whole lot with Kathy Connolly and this is so many of the wonderful old uh, Pony Club personalities and characters that made it the great organization that it was.
0: That's amazing. That's so cool. And I think that that's definitely an aspect of our industry that should continue to be highlighted because for, I feel like anyone that I have talked to who has been a part of Pony Club, it's made such an impact on not only their, their equestrian life, but just their life in general, being a part of a club like that.
1: Yeah, it 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 was uh, it is still an amazing club with an amazing mission. Back then, there were very few top riders that were Olympic riders from any of the three disciplines that did not come out of the United States Pony Club. Interesting, yeah. Yeah, it it really was the main the main training ground for the three Olympic disciplines, as far as children that then grew up like Lendon Gray, Elizabeth Lewis, so many others, uh, Linda Zhang, they all came up through the, the United States pony club, almost all of the event riders. And sadly, as the, culture of riding has changed over the decades the the thing that made the united states pony club so important and worked so well became much more complicated because horses became so much more expensive and riders wanted more immediate kind of gratification their families, might, they may have, but also the, the young people. And they felt instead of the positive effects of having the basics of, of Pony, they felt that it just sort of dist- was a distraction, more or less, and from what they really wanted. And that's a sadness for me. And I know that that is uh, something that Lendon Gray has really remained so profoundly impactful because of it in her Dressage for Kids. And we began the, the Emerging Dressage Athlete Program with her. And now, of course, that Emerging Dressage Athlete Program is part of the United States Equestrian Federation. So, But, it, but she still is dedicated to kids not only Becoming very good riders in our discipline of dressage, but she's super dedicated in making them really great horsemen, meaning all facets of horse mastership and and that's something that i uh, I think is just wonderful and i I am equally dedicated to that
0: take me back to when you kind of graduated through pony club and you were finishing up your junior career. Did you become a professional right away? What did that kind of transition look like for you?
1: Well, so I was living with this family, Anne and Bob Riley and their kids, and especially Beth Riley, who uh, is a contemporary of mine. And, and she was in pony club with me. Her, the, Ann Riley was the district commissioner of Arlington Fairfax Pony Club. And I was going back and forth between Georgia and, and Virginia. And I was way too young. So you know how Pony Club goes through 21. Mm-hmm. Most people go for their A, having been a B for years, and they more in the ages of, say, 19, 20, 21. Well, I was 16 and i wanted to go for my a uh i was told that it might not be a great idea but Anne basically supported whatever i wanted to do and so i went for my a at the potomac valley dressage center which was one of those places in the the Washington DC area where they did dressage and jumping and pretty much everything and they would hold these exams there so I and probably nine or ten others went for the A exam there. And you had to do everything. You had to, as you probably know, you had to do written exams. You had to do stable management things. You had to ride dressage. You had to jump. You had to go across country a bit and show that you had that ability. You had to change horses. You had to show people that you could lunge horses and train horses. And so... I went through that test. And at the end of that test, they line you up and they tell you if you passed or not. But they also give you a written report, basically, that says you were able to do this satisfactorily or not, or you were able to do that. And at the bottom, there are two major things. And one said the degree of maturity for the test taken And in that line, it said, for me, satisfactory. It wasn't like glowing. And then underneath that, it said, degree of confidence for the test taken. And next to that, they put overwhelming. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) So, yeah, I was an extremely confident young man. and. What was so interesting about that is that I was the exact opposite in the rest of my life. So while I was extremely confident in my riding and anything to do with horses, in school, I was very introverted and was more of a loner.
0: Yeah, got it. I mean, as you then started kind of going into your professional career... How? At what point were you living in Europe, living in Germany?
1: Oh, that didn't happen until uh, in 1980. Around 1980, Colonel Youngquist passed away. And I got a job in the Boston area. And one of the perks of the job was that the owners of this farm would send me for a short period of time to work with someone who was an idol of mine uh, named Willie Schulteis. So it was in probably 81 that I made my first trip over to Germany and stayed there for a couple of months and, and worked with Willie Schulteis. I didn't speak a word of English. Wow. He didn't speak, I, I'm, I'm yeah. sorry, I didn't speak a word of German. <laughs> he didn't speak a word of English. And yet by osmosis, I learned so much and it was just incredible in so many different ways. But yeah, that was the first then of many, many times from that point forward, I ended up living a lot of my adult life over in Europe, because once I was making teams, and part of that would be to train and compete in Europe every year. there were there were year after year, I stayed and lived in uh, in Europe. Uh, the The longest time was I left in eighty six after the world championships. I was just not happy with myself because even though I had already been on an Olympic team, and a north american championship team and a world championship team and had made it to the world cup i still felt like i had no idea of how to be a winner in those classes at that level so after those competitions i said well you know i'm going to even though I don't have any money, I'm going to gather everything that I can together and I'm going to figure out how to move to Germany and I'm not coming home till I've learned how to be a winner. And that's what I did. So I stayed from 86 until 88, living in Germany. And yeah, it's a whole other story. Yeah. I mean, it seems like it
0: paid off. Were you at your first... Olympic Games in
1: 1982?
0: In 1984. In
1: 1984. Okay. So yeah, ta- in
0: Los Angeles. Amazing. So tell me a little bit about that process. How, I mean, were the Olympic Games, like, how long were they on your radar or even a, a goal of yours? When did that become something that you were, you know, diligently preparing for and then were able to experience?
1: Yeah, in 19... 19- 80, I was working in a partnership with a lady named Patience Priest, who had a farm, sugarland farm, in Potomac, Maryland area. And uh, it was actually Poolsville, Maryland, but in that Potomac area. And so we partnered on a lot of things with horses and and had a really fun time and it was exciting. And we got a horse from a, an Olympic event rider named Karen Stives. I don't know if you know that name at all, but Karen was a top three-day event rider. And she had gone over to Europe and bought a horse that was called Lago Maggiore. The horse had been owned by a famous, famous, like a grand dame of dressage, Rosemary Springer. And her trainer was this man, Willie Schulteis, who later I ended up going and training with. He had trained over 100 International Grand Prix horses. And of the last 100 years, he is... One of a small handful of what you would call the great, great masters. And so he had trained this horse, Lago Maggiore, and we went up to the Boston area, tried him. He was not very expensive for back then at all. And he was represented as this horse that was Grand Prix and 13 years old. And so we bought him. And so this is just beginning of 1980, which, of course, was the Olympic year. And so I started training immediately. I was very excited, started doing all of the Grand Prix work, thought I'm going to try out for the Olympics in 1980. And I started going to the shows. I remember thinking, oh, my God, it's a, he was a big, heavy, black a uh, Hanoverian horse, and I remember thinking, oh, it's really exhausting, this work. And I would be like <laughs> halfway through the test walking across the diagonal, and my legs would be cramping up, and a lot from just not breathing right, and a yeah. lot from nerves, and all of these various things, right? So it just so happened that later in that year, two things happened. One, uh, Jimmy Carter decided that America would not go to that Olympics in Moscow. So we boycotted that Olympics. And though there was an alternate Olympics, which I tried out for, I was like, I ended up being maybe seventh or eighth on the list. And so, but in that same year, Willie Schulteis was going to come over to the United States to do a clinic. And that was going to be in Kentucky through some friends, the Felgendreyers, and they invited me. And so I trucked the horse down there with a friend, Simon Barber, and went in this clinic. And again, uh, I didn't speak any German. And this was my first time ever meeting Schulteis. But Dieter Felgendreyer had been a rider with Schulteis. So he uh, navigated us through all of this and and translated everything. And it was an amazing several days of riding with him. And at one point, he said, you know, the horse looks really good for such an old horse. And I and I remember saying back through Dieter, I don't know, what are you talking about? He's only 13. Hmm. And he laughed, Schulteis, and he said... 13, he was like 16 when he came to the United States (laughs) four or five years ago.
0: No way.
1: So here I had been thinking, well, it's really hard work, but I'm going to make him you know, go and we're going to do this. And I had been just pushing my way through the Grand Prix on a horse that I had no idea was like 21 years old. Wow. And part of the reason for that was because back in the olden days... Horse dealers, of which, as great of a trainer, Schulteis was, he was also a horse dealer in that in the kind of ways that, when you think of that, the all the things that you think when you say those words, the horse dealer, that's what he was. (laughs) So (laughs) the horse had had his teeth bishoped. Do you know what that means? No, I don't think I do. They file an old horse's teeth down to nubs so that you can't tell their age. Oh, tricky. So, (laughs) right? So... Oh my gosh! There are so many stories like that with different things. What what people would do? But so there was no way of knowing when we bought the horse, and probably she didn't know either. I certainly don't hold her responsible for selling me a horse that was not the age that it was. But looking back on it, you know, you think, oh my god, who would do that to a horse? They wanted money, and that's that's what happened. So. Uh, so that was the beginning, though, of my attempt. And then, in those next years, just more things happened. And and while over in Germany, riding at Schultices, I was riding around, and there was a gentleman who I had met in in the little town of Warendorf, named Michael Riplo, and he was super nice to me and spoke english well and then one day i'm riding around and he has he had a friend with him so i got introduced after i was finished riding to this gentleman whose name was uli castleman and it was very pleasant didn't see him again. And upon leaving, this was right before I was ready to leave back for the United States. And I got back to my job in Boston and everything was fine. And then one night I got a telephone call from Michael and he said, listen, Robert, Castleman, who you met, would like you to come to work for him. And he and Paul Schakamula are starting a Performance Sales International farm in the Virginia area. And I said, you know, Michael, that's very, very nice of you. But I just started this job like six months ago. And I'm enjoying it up here. And I have my life. So thanks very much. And I hung up. And then the next night, in the middle of the night, I get another call. And it's Michael and Castleman. And basically went through the same thing, said, thank you very much. I'm really not interested, hung up. And then the next night, like at <laughs> three o'clock in the morning, I get another call and it's the two of them and Paul Shakamala. And Paul said, don't hang up. I'm going to tell you what we're offering you. Hmm. And so he, they made me an offer that at that point in American dressage, no, no American had that kind of a salary and those kind of perks, including a Grand Prix horse that I could try out with. And so I, I took the job and moved several weeks later to Virginia to work for, yeah. for them, you know? And then that was now around 1982 going into 83, I got the horse Romantico as a very young grand prix horse uh, and he ended up being my 1984 olympic horse
0: wow how incredible that's such a fun story that's so cool Have you ever needed to fly your horse somewhere? The partners of Equijet have been well-established in the competitive horse world for over 20 years and have been in the import and export business for more than 15. With lifetime passions of riding, training, and taking care of horses, Equijet's expertise and knowledge of the nuances of equine travel are just unparalleled in the business. They really understand that comprehensive and clear logistical solutions to shipping needs are of the utmost importance and they ensure that your horses are headed to their final destination with the proper documents, safety, of course, at all times. At Equijet, they are horse people first, dedicated to the well-being of your horse in transit and to its destination in top condition. Equijet's top priority is shipping your horses safely and with the highest amount of service, and their team is absolutely committed to professionalism, detail, and timeliness. So to find out more about Equijet and how they could be helpful for your shipping needs, you can visit. Visit their website at equijet.com. That's e-q-u-i-j-e-t.com. Thank you so much, Equijet, for sponsoring this episode. All right, let's get back to the episode. Looking back at your career in, you know, obviously over the years you've accomplished some incredible things. What are some moments that you feel like really stick out in your mind as kind of like monumental or pivotal? times in your career?
1: I would say that just from a standpoint of my riding career, uh, winning the Grand Prix Freestyle in Aachen, and then going into the main stadium, having them play the American National Anthem while the American flag was raised up in front of 60,000 people, with Reiner Klimke, for the first time probably ever, standing to the in second place to the right of me, hmm. and then that whole prize giving—that's probably one of those moments that you never forget. Yeah, certainly our first Olympic bronze medal in uh, Barcelona was also a big moment. Mm. But even with those moments, the things that I look back at with uh, more pride are things like Robert and myself and Mason Phelps one night lamenting the fact that we were losing so many friends to HIV and AIDS and that. Money that we had been raising doing these events uh, in the 80s were the money was going to other organizations where so much of the money was going into the administrative part. Of those organizations versus actually helping people. Sure. Yeah. That we decided that night at dinner that we would start our own foundation, and we created the Equestrian AIDS Foundation, which this year is now 25 years old. Wow. And many years later, when AIDS became something that they could control much better and and help people to live longer and more full lives, we. Decided to change it into the Equestrian Aid Foundation. And now it's been helping people for all of these years fighting life threatening illnesses and catastrophic injuries. It's a, that's one of the things I look back on. And places where I felt there was a, a lack, for instance, with Lendon starting the Emerging Dressage Athlete Program and I feel so fortunate that was taken over by the Federation and now we're, I think maybe in year number 13 or hmm. so at least of doing the, the horse mastership week that, that I feel honored that still keep in my name each year. And so we, we begin the year each year in January with that uh, week long clinic for kids under 21 and they're the top young riders the top children from ponies all the way up through the young riders and they're kids that by merit and by hard work they are deserving and then we bring other kids just to audit and it's open to the public generally with COVID, it's complicated but it has been all these years open to the public as well to watch
0: How cool. That's amazing. I would also love to talk about the process that you went through to write The Gates to Brilliance, which is your book. So tell me a little bit about how that came to be.
1: Well, I have been being asked to write a book for, I would say, at least 15 years. <laughs> yeah. P- different, different people say, you have to write a book, you have to uh-huh. write a book. And, and I had never wanted to write a book about riding because there are great books out there that I have s- truly nothing to add to. The book by Padaisky, The Complete Training of Horse and Rider, uh, is amazing. The book by Harry Bolt, The Dressage Horse, is not only a great book as far as being one that tells pretty much everything but it's also pictorially fantastic and i just don't believe that i could add anything to those books so when people kept asking me and i thought about it i i felt like well what would i want to write about and Martha and I spoke about it and and I said you know maybe what I'd like to write about is how to find happiness success and have a a great life that's what I've been so fortunate with is that I I look at my life with now being with Robert for 33 years and just I have just this great blessed life, and so uh, I thought, well, maybe what I could do is write about the things that I feel brought me to a place where I could look back on a life that has been so fortunate, and that's what I did. Both, uh, and I think that the the most interesting maybe part of writing about that is looking back and seeing that it was the hardest moments. It was the biggest failures that really taught me how to find happiness and success. Yeah.
0: Talk to me a little bit about those maybe low points or or learning moments that you felt like... I. Your tagline, how a gay Jewish middle-class kid who loved horses found success. I mean, that is just so relatable to so many people within the industry. And like you were saying, it was those challenging moments that really shaped you to who you are and and finding that success. So are, are there any things in particular, which I'm sure you walk through in your book, that you feel like were those moments that really kind of brought you to where you are today?
1: Yeah, there are there there were and i will tell you fortunately i i see that there will be more and yep. and they are <laughs> never ending yeah. that's the that is the 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 wonderful mystery of all of it and the great adventure of all of it is that we're constantly looking for something probably failing at finding it first time out but in the search we find not only the satisfaction of the of the journey if we're smart but we also hopefully find the key to what that was that's unlocking that lock to to happiness and for me uh, i could give you so many different examples probably the the most The most significant one of those was in 1983. So I had gotten that horse, Romantico. I was part of this amazing organization, Performance Sales International. The coach of the Olympic team was also a part of Performance Sales International in that he was maybe one of the one of the masterminds along with Paul Shock and Uli Castleman of the of that organization. And they're all very close friends. So as the co the Olympic team, he decided along with the people that administer our team that they would have two weekends of Olympic trials. Uh, sorry, of Pan American trials. This was the Pan American year of 19 19- 83 and so i thought okay this particular pan-american games is going to be a combination of the pre-saint george for the team event and the intermediate two, which is like a, a easier version of the grand prix and so my horse was a grand prix horse and therefore I knew that he, that, that he could do this, and I'd been competing already in some Grand prix, and I thought, well, this will be a shoe-in for me. So I went to the, the Olympic trials, and in each of the competitions – as I finished the competition and I saluted the judges, as I walked out, the judges had these big smiles on their faces. They would have give me a thumbs up, and I thought, "Oh my gosh!" That's, so the first weekend finished, and I was felt very confident. And second weekend, we do the Prix Saint George and the Grand Prix again, and I go through it all. And I'm thinking, oh my gosh, this is just going great. And the judges are all giving me thumbs up. And the other riders who are trying out, for instance, Hilda Gurney, Kay Meredith, uh, Dennis Callen, all of these riders who are friends of mine as well, and peers, they're all excited, but not no one more than I. So we get to the very end of it and they would have the the president who is at that time billy Steinkraus. i don't know if you're familiar with that name but billy Steinkraus was one of the great great jump riders for america through decades And and a super fantastic human being an articulate person just a great man. And so he told all of us to come. We were at the Gladstone at the United States equestrian team. And so we went upstairs into the library where they would line you up and then he would stand behind the podium. And, and at that time, the some of the judges were up in there and and, and I get, I'm in line, and I'm all excited, waiting to hear my name called. And the coach, uh, George Tedoresco, is over by the door smoking his pipe, giving no, no, no kind of vibe at all. So I'm all excited. And so Billy Steinfeld starts by saying how proud he was of everybody, and he, he's excited to now name the team. And he starts by naming Hildegard and I think to myself, well, she's been an Olympic bronze medalist. She's on a different horse, but I think it's great. She'll she'll do great, and I I can't wait to be on the team with her. And then they go to the next one, and they say, and the next one is Kay and Meredith. And I say, oh, I love Kay. I think this will be so much fun. <laughs> we'll have such a great team together. And then they do the next one, which is not me either. And then I think, okay well, it's a three-man team and then the reserve, so I'll be the reserve. I'm okay with that. And then they named the reserve, and that's not me either. And then, they, and then I thought, well, okay. Then he's going to be the reserve, and I'll be the second reserve, so we won't go anywhere, but, you know, that'll be fine. So then they named the second reserve, which was this lovely lady who had a big step, a chestnut stallion named Marchinhoff who we used to joke because his head was like the size of like a Samsonite suitcase <laughs> and it and, and she did a great job with it and it's not that she didn't but I thought that had I even just walked and trotted I would have made more points yeah then even even though. My horse didn't have a great walk, and my horse didn't have a great canter, but I had a horse that had a great trot and great massage, and I thought I was a shoe in right? So when I wasn't even named in any of those spots, I listened, and I politely left. And I, back then, we had rooms that were above the, the, the barn, and over over the garages as well there were more rooms and so i went back to my room and i i just lied down in my bed and i started crying and so i'm crying for i don't know how many minutes and there's a knock on the door and kay meredith opens the door and comes in and she sees and i'm like crying and she sits down on the bed and she says listen robert we may never know why you weren't named on the team, but it had nothing to do with the horse and it had nothing to do with your ride and you did great. So I just want you to know that someday you may know and and you may never know, but I'm just here to tell you that you did an amazing job. And I just want you to know that that made I still get emotional thinking about it because it was such yeah. a lovely thing for her to do. And she's a really dear person. And so it wasn't until a year later that I went for the Olympic team and I made the Olympic team. Hilda Gurney again was the, made the, uh, the Olympic team with her great horse team that had been the bronze medalist in 1976. I was again in 1984. That's telling, right? But yeah. uh, but yes, I made the Olympic team, and then it wasn't until after I made the Olympic team that I found out that the reason that I did not make the Pan American team the year before is that the coach already. Knew that if I went in the Pan American Games, they would see the flaws that the horse had in his walk and his canter, and they didn't want, and he didn't want me being pigeonholed by the judging world as a, a rider with a horse that had these deficiencies. So, rather than put me on an international stage, he waited. Until 84, where the Grand Prix and the Grand Prix Special were the two tests that you had to do. And so it was full of tricks. And he thought that he was preventing the, the world from seeing the issues of my horse.
0: Wow. That, that's my, wild.
1: In, yeah. The, the, the saddest part of that is that I ended up, therefore, going to the Olympics as my very first international experience in the arena. And wow. as a as an old guy now, and a coach for many, many years, I can tell you that myself, as a coach, would never allow that to happen
0: right. <laughs> to yeah. a young
1: person. Yeah. That was not the way you want somebody to start their career. And... Uh, and so it's all interesting, but that that was one of those pivotal moments in my life where afterwards, uh, after Kay came to me and I pulled myself together and I said to myself, you know what, Robert? You are never going to allow your happiness to be predicated on whether you make or don't make a team. And so... That's the way I've lived the rest of my life, too. And what's so interesting is I've made a lot of teams after that uh, and ridden for America many, many, many times, but I never was so possessed by the idea of doing it ever again. I did it. Sometimes I did it and I look back on it and I think, well, that was a big mistake because it, it wasn't on a horse or with a feeling that I really wanted. but it becomes habit forming too, to make teams. And then it's part of what defines you. And so all of these things are, are things that I've written in my book and, and spoken about and tried to be very honest about it.
0: Wow. I mean, what a what a pivotal moment that could have very easily just been so overwhelming and all consuming in a negative sense that you know very easily cuz that that was such a hard moment to experience that especially hearing from other people how well they thought you did and and you thought you did really well and and it it sounds like you did it was just kind of like a a circumstantial reasoning for why they chose not to include you and so i feel like for for a lot of us it could have been you know, an, an end point in, in what you could have done. But instead, it, it really, looking back, it's amazing to see how um, your life has, has changed for the better because of that moment.
1: And that's the big message of the book. That is truly the overarching message of the book is that life goes by very, very quickly and it seems like the older you get, the faster it's going by. And keeping a perspective and both an understanding of what really happiness comes from versus sometimes what you get so possessed by and, and, much of the time that isn't so helpful to your life. So I think that truly, like I say, the, the, the big lesson maybe of my book is about having a um, most amazing journey. And that journey will include loss and it will include failure and it will include dark in difficult times. But if you don't have those, then how do you figure out your way out of anything? Mm-hmm. And how do you even know how to balance your life out without those? So that that really is this the story.
0: Thought you had nothing to write about.
1: <laughs> exactly. Yeah.
0: I love it. Well, I can't wait to read The Gates to Brilliance. I know it's um, available through Trafalgar Square Books on horseandriderbooks.com. But uh, Robert, thank you so much for taking the time and uh, telling us a little bit about your story and so excited to read more. But I just wish you all the best.
1: Thanks so much. I appreciate it. It's been fun talking with you as well. And uh, yeah, I hope that people enjoy the book and (laughs) and I, I will be all over the place signing and And doing some live, uh, I'm actually doing a live Instagram, Facebook event on November 4th at 7pm. So if people want to tune in and chat and talk and hang out for an hour, I'll be excited to, to actually talk with people about it then as well.
0: Oh, amazing. Can't wait for that.